Ed Foster trudged through the desert in northwestern New Mexico. Sweat beaded under his cowboy hat. His fingers grew sticky against the metal detector in his hand. For years, Foster had scoured the land between the Navajo and Ute reservations, seeking a lost cache of smuggled gold bars. Now, he thought he was finally getting close. Shading his eyes with his hand, he looked back behind him. There it was, Tanger Mesa, the plateau that possibly held the secrets to an elusive treasure. There was nowhere else the pilot could have safely landed 30 years ago in 1933. The rest of the landscape was notoriously rocky, but the mesa was fairly clear of obstacles. The lost fortune had to be nearby. On his way back to the mesa, the treasure hunter walked toward a rocky outcropping. He hoped the boulders would provide shade on this hot day. More importantly, this seemed like the perfect hiding place for buried gold. The orange stone pillars loomed over Foster's head as he weaved through the rough terrain. After searching for hours and with hot sweat dripping down his face, Foster considered returning home. But just then, something caught his eye. Foster rushed over to the nearest rock to investigate. He pulled a camera from his backpack and took a picture. His breathing quickened. What Ed saw carved into the rock lined up perfectly with all his research. Written in stone were the words, 1933, 16-ton. The exact year and quantity of Leon Trabuco's lost gold fortune. Foster had just uncovered the first concrete piece of evidence that the legendary cache really existed. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream God for free on Spotify, just open the app and type God in the search bar. Today, we'll examine Leon Trabuco's buried treasure, 16 tons of gold ingots that, according to legend, were buried in the New Mexican desert in 1933 or 1934. But apparently, Trabuco died without telling anyone where he'd hidden the stash. There are a couple prominent theories about where it might be, but the most striking is the possibility that the gold never existed outside of local folklore. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. According to legend, on April 15, 1933, Five influential businessmen met in Cuernavaca, just south of Mexico City. It had only been a few years since Wall Street had collapsed and the Great Depression gripped America and then the world. 
But the five compatriots weren't worried about economic hardships. They were business partners devising a cunning plan. Attendees included Ricardo Ortega and Carlos Sepulvedo, a pair of wealthy ranchers. Rafael Borrega, an investment banker, Professor Guzman Morata, an economics expert, and the most notable man in the room, Leon Trabuco. Like three of the others, Trabuco was a rancher, but he also owned mines. The roughly 45-year-old magnate reportedly owned 10 to 12 tons of gold. His wealth was the key to their plan. They'd all been invited by Rafael Borrega, a middle-aged international investment banker. Allegedly, he'd made most of his wealth smuggling money across borders for various international companies. And he had a similar plan to capitalize on the Great Depression in the United States. The American economy was in dire straits. But they just elected a new president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who aimed to fix the spiraling nation. The four businessmen thought they could profit off of Roosevelt's new economic policies. Borrega closely watched the movements of the U.S. government. He knew that FDR was going to try to revitalize the economy by moving away from the gold standard and would raise the price of gold from $20.67 an ounce to $30 or more. Borrega's plan was simple. Buy gold up in Mexico, then transport it to the United States. Once across the border, they could sell it at a higher price and make millions. But there was a legal snag. It was against the law to smuggle gold. If the source of their wealth was discovered, the conspirators could face lengthy prison sentences in both countries. In spite of the risk, the group agreed to the plan. The promise of wealth was too appealing to turn down. Rafael Borrega, Carlos Sepulvedo, and Richard Ortega pooled their resources. Together, they acquired as much Mexican gold as they could find. Presumably, Trabuco's employees then melted the coins and jewelry into bars and combined it with the gold from his mines. Together, the group acquired roughly 16 tons of gold. Their fortune would increase from 13 million to 25 million in today's dollars. Since Leon Trabuco was the most knowledgeable about storing gold and had contributed the largest share, the group put him in charge of transporting the fortune into the United States. Once there, he'd store it somewhere safe. Then the conspirators would wait for American gold prices to rise. Once they hit the right value, they'd sell off their stash and make a handsome sum. It all sounded simple. But first, Trabuco needed to find a way to get the gold out of Mexico. Though U.S. Border Control was a relatively new agency, they were still very alert. In 1933, prohibition was coming to an end, but the federal government had had an eye out for bootleggers smuggling liquor into the United States. Routes from Mexico to the U.S. were guarded. But perhaps they could move their cargo through the air. In the summer of 1933, a Salt Lake City civilian pilot and crop duster named William Elliott received a mysterious telegram. 
The message asked him to fly to New Mexico and meet with a man named Don Leon Trabuco. It didn't say what Trabuco wanted or how he'd selected Elliot, but it did offer the pilot $2,500 for his time, or $49,000 today. Enticed by the fee, Elliot did as he was told. When he arrived on the remote airstrip, a car was waiting for him. A man in a dark suit stood beside it. Without a word, the man handed Elliot a note, which instructed him to meet Don Trabuco a few miles away in the town of Kirtland, New Mexico. The silent valet motioned to his parked car, and Elliot got in. At a Kirtland hotel, Elliot met Don Trabuco face to face. Trabuco explained that he wanted Elliot to fly gold ingots from southern Mexico to northern New Mexico. This was no easy task. The round-trip journey in a plane from that era would take an estimated 12 hours and require multiple refueling stops. And Trabuco's gold stash was too large and heavy to transport in a single trip. Elliot would have to fly back and forth more than a dozen times. Each trip, he'd carry roughly 1,500 pounds of gold. With such a heavy cargo, this was a risky and intensive flight, not like the easy crop dusting work Elliot was used to. To cut down on risk, Trabuco said he'd give Elliot an evasive route that skirted around the known border control lookouts. However, that meant every time Elliot touched down for fuel, he'd be vulnerable to law enforcement. In light of the hazards, Trabuco offered to pay the pilot $2,500 per trip. Although it was risky, Elliot knew he couldn't refuse such a lucrative deal. He gladly accepted the job. But before Trabuco moved forward with the plan, he swore Elliot to secrecy. Elliot agreed, and Trabuco told the pilot to fly to his ranch in Mexico the next day. Elliot arrived in Puebla, Mexico, late the next afternoon. To his surprise, he was met by a pair of armed guards. They told him they were there to supervise the loading of the gold that evening while he rested. Elliot nodded nervously. More armed men brought him to Trabuco's Pueblo Ranch. They took the pilot into the house and showed him his room. Elliot felt uneasy as he ate dinner. But when he went to bed, he calmed his anxious nerves by imagining what he'd do with the money from this venture. He'd have more than enough to expand his crop dusting operation. Fantasizing about wealth and success, he finally fell asleep. Elliot awoke early the next morning, eager to get going. He hastily ate his breakfast. With a full belly, he climbed into his plane and took off. The engine sputtered and groaned, burdened with one ton of cargo. As he hit cruising altitude, Elliot glanced out his window at the ground far below. He prayed that no one would spot his plane. In 1933, most United States Border Patrol agents were on horseback and couldn't do much about an unauthorized flight. But there were hundreds of them, each with the ability to report in whenever they saw something suspicious. If they spotted Elliot, they could notify other agents further north. Eventually, he'd have to land and refuel. Then, 
they might catch up to him. So William Elliot flew as high as possible to avoid being seen, but his plane struggled to maintain altitude. Elliot paid close attention to all of his gauges and clutched the yoke. Any pocket of turbulence could send him plummeting. As the plane rumbled and shuddered around him, Elliot began to wonder if arrest was really such a bad fate. If the plane crashed in the desert, he could die of his injuries or thirst before anyone stumbled upon the wreckage. Maybe he'd be better off if law enforcement did spot him. Luckily, it didn't come to that. His plane shook and occasionally dipped, but it stayed in the air. He passed over southern and central Mexico without incident. Every time Elliot touched down to refuel, he nervously scanned the horizon for any mounted officer. And on his last stop before the border, he spotted a cloud of dust over the horizon. His heart sank, but he couldn't take off again without more gas. Instead, he waited and hoped whoever was out there wouldn't spot him. But then he noticed that the dust was coming closer. When we return, Elliot risks arrest while smuggling Don Leon Trabuco's gold stash. And now, back to the story. In April 1933, a group of wealthy Mexican businessmen hatched a daring scheme. As the Great Depression ravaged the United States economy, they expected American gold prices to steeply rise. So they bought as much Mexican gold as they could and smuggled it into the United States. Leon Trabuco, the owner of several gold mines, hired American pilot William Elliott to secretly fly the treasure into the U.S. Elliott was a skilled pilot, but nothing had prepared him for the risky journey north with a literal ton of gold weighing down his plane. On his last stop to refuel before crossing the border, Elliot saw a cloud of dust over the horizon. He immediately tensed up. Anyone could have spotted him, Mexican authorities or the U.S. Border Patrol, who might have ventured south. But just as it looked like his pursuers were closing in, they turned right and headed east. They hadn't been riding toward him after all. Elliot breathed a sigh of relief, finished refueling, and climbed back into his plane. For the rest of his flight, Elliot followed Trabuco's guide and avoided all of the Border Patrol hotspots. His nerves never calmed, but Elliot made it into the United States without any further issue. His plane finally touched down on a mesa in a remote part of New Mexico. He was relatively close to the Colorado border in what is known as the Four Corners area. As his engines whirred to a stop, a pickup truck drove up. Don Leon Trabuco stepped out and greeted Elliot. The impeccably dressed millionaire wore a safari vest, boots, and khakis. His men in the truck were similarly outfitted, as if for an intense hike. Trabuco welcomed Elliot and told him that his men were taking the gold to a secret location. He was so grateful for Elliot's service that he promised him a cut of the profit whenever they sold the gold, on top of his smuggling fees. Trabuco's men unloaded the cargo and moved it into their trucks. Then, 
Elliot watched the trucks drive by and disappear in a cloud of dust. Wherever they were going, it was clear he wasn't welcome. But Elliot didn't ask any uncomfortable questions. He'd done his duty by sneaking the first batch of gold over the border. Now, he had to transport the rest. For the next few weeks, Elliot flew back and forth from Puebla, Mexico to New Mexico. Every time, his plane carried about one ton of gold. In total, Elliot made 16 trips. When the Mexicans loaded the final cash onto their trucks, Trabuco paid Elliot $40,000 and swore him to secrecy again. Elliot accepted the money and walked back over to his plane for his flight back to Utah. He put the cash in the seat next to him and took off. As he rose through the air, he looked down at the rapidly disappearing trucks and the desert ahead of them. He saw no barns, vaults, or warehouses. There didn't seem to be anywhere to store the treasure. He thought back to Trabuco's men, all wearing rugged clothes in a truck full of digging equipment. Elliot reasoned that his new business partners must be burying the gold. And naturally, the tale of a hidden stash of gold nestled somewhere under the New Mexico desert was too good not to share. Though Elliot had been sworn to secrecy, he also had a flair for the dramatic. He boasted of his adventures to a select few friends. He even suggested that if the Mexicans were unsuccessful in selling the ingots, he and his friends could dig them up. Meanwhile, he spent the $40,000 he'd been paid up front. He made investments and expanded his crop dusting business. Even as he became more successful, his mind never strayed far from the allegedly buried gold. As the months wore on and the price of gold went up, Elliot didn't hear from Trabuco. He figured he was selling the gold off piecemeal to avoid notice. Any day now, he'd contact Elliot with an update. Or maybe the plan had gone disastrously wrong. Up north, the schemers encountered an unforeseen problem, the United States government. As they predicted, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was eager to pull the country out of economic disaster. So he passed the Gold Reserve Act of 1934. It raised the price of gold from about $20 to $35 an ounce. The value of Trabuco's stash spiked overnight with a reported $7 million increase. The speculators were primed to make a killing. However, it all came with a catch. To prevent Americans from taking advantage of the rising prices, FDR had already capped the amount of gold private citizens could own. If a business owner or wealthy citizen suddenly had tons of ingots that were unaccounted for, it would raise suspicion meaning no buyer was going to buy the massive illegal stash. Leon Trabuco's treasure was suddenly a hundred times more difficult to sell. Trabuco tried to drum up whichever buyers would bite, but he couldn't find anybody. The gold may as well have been worthless. In the late 1930s, the conspirators debated. They suggested cutting their losses and flying the gold back to Mexico. 
but gold wasn't as valuable south of the border, and they'd already cut into the profits when they'd paid William Elliot. Hiring someone to fly the gold back would only cost even more money. Desperate, Rafael Borrega proposed that he could smuggle it from Mexico to Germany. The group had several meetings to discuss the plan, but just as they began seriously exploring the possibility, tragedy struck. In 1939, Rafael Borrega died in his office, reportedly from a seizure. A year later, in 1940, Carlos Sepulveda was killed in an automobile accident. It is unknown what became of Professor Morada and Ricardo Ortega. They completely vanished from the records. According to most accounts, in 1941, the only surviving conspirators were pilot William Elliott and Don Leon Trabuco. After Pearl Harbor, Elliott enlisted to fight in the Second World War. As an experienced pilot, he was quickly dispatched to the European theater. His stint ended tragically when he was killed in combat in 1944. Some sources claim that Don Leon Trabuco was still looking for gold buyers as late as the 1950s and 60s. However, others claim that he got caught in some kind of political scandal. The rumors are vague. It has been said that Trabuco was arrested and died in prison years before Elliot was killed in action. Or it's possible Trabuco fled to Spain to avoid legal troubles. We know one thing for certain. Whenever Leon Trabuco died, he left no evidence of the gold's location. But that didn't keep treasure hunters from searching. William Elliot had never seen where the gold was buried, but he'd shared his stories with his friends, and they, in turn, spread his wild story. Eventually, the tales reached a man named Ed Foster. Foster grew up in the small town of Farmington in northwestern New Mexico. He often heard locals recount Elliot's story of lost gold, and in the 1950s, he decided to look for himself. Foster hiked out into the desert to look around. None of the legends were very specific about where the gold was or where he should start looking. Most of the time, he just relied on plain dumb luck and his metal detector. This was his weekend project, after all. For the most part, Foster saw his treasure hunting as a nice, relaxing hobby. It gave him an excuse to spend time out in nature, he didn't really expect to find anything, but sometimes Foster stumbled upon legitimate leads. One day, while hiking through a remote part of the Navajo Nation within 20 miles of Farmington, he saw something unusual, a house that seemed out of place. Traditional Navajo houses were circular, unassuming structures, but the building in question sported a distinct architectural style. It was an elaborate rectangular house built of stones, complete with a veranda. Foster suspected that the Navajo people hadn't built that house. So Foster interviewed multiple Navajo people. One woman, who was only six years old in 1933, told Foster that several Mexican men had lived on the reservation. At that time, it was very unusual for Mexicans to live in the area. 
The woman's testimony made Foster suspect that the men were Trabuco's employees hired to guard the secret bounty. Another witness told Foster that she'd seen a plane land on the nearby plateau, Conger Mesa, many times. But the most compelling piece of evidence appeared when Foster hiked across the land near Conga Mesa and the rectangular house. He discovered an outcropping 28 miles from the house, which he dubbed Shrine Rock. The stone face had a carving that read, 1933, 16 ton. Foster now had three key clues, the plane sightings at Conger Mesa, the architecturally abnormal building, and Shrine Rock. Until this point, his search had been unfocused, but now he narrowed the hunt. Foster surmised that the gold had to be stashed near the area where the plane had landed. The land was rugged and the old Depression-era trucks couldn't have traveled very far. Nor could the stash be too far away from the marker with the year and amount. And if the guards were to be effective lookouts for the gold, they needed to live close to the stash too, probably in the rectangular house. So the treasure hunter reasoned that the gold must be located within the triangle formed by the three landmarks. Foster searched the area extensively, relying on his own observations and a metal detector. After years of no luck, he hired a surveying company to review the area in the early 1990s. They used aerial photography to look for irregularities in the ground, but didn't turn up anything helpful. Foster expressed hope that future technologies might reveal where the gold was buried. For example, in satellite imaging, a satellite uses microwaves to see images underground, like how an X-ray can photograph your bones through your flesh. Scientists have used microwave satellite images to find meteorite craters under Antarctic ice and ancient underground riverbanks in the Sahara. They could be used to find fossils or archaeological sites in the future. Maybe someday, this kind of technology could finally solve the mystery of Leon Trabuco's gold. But in the 1990s, Foster was an elderly man. His once relaxing hobby had become a chore, one that had sucked up his time, his energy, and his money. So after 35 years of fruitless searching, he gave up. But he still believed the gold was out there. The strange house, Conger Mesa's potential landing strip, and the marked rock definitely seemed like legitimate clues. And the accounts of mysterious Mexican man on the Navajo reservation also lend credibility to his theory that the gold was nearby. But Foster's evidence wasn't rock solid. Foster wasn't an architectural expert. His assumption that the rectangle house was connected to the gold shouldn't be taken as concrete evidence. He based it on his idea that the house would look more at home in Tijuana. That claim is dubious at best and shows confirmation bias at worst. Foster's other clues leave a lot to be desired, too. Many people dispute the authenticity of the message on Shrine Rock, 1933, 16 ton. If Trabuco's men wanted to keep the gold hidden from prying eyes, why would they carve that message or mark where the cache was hidden? Some believe local teenagers left the message as a prank. 
they'd probably heard the same rumors and stories as Foster and defaced the rock to mislead future treasure hunters. But the biggest problem with Foster's theory is that no one has ever come forward to corroborate it. Even if Don Leon Trabuco died without revealing the cache's location, his guards should have known where it was, but we don't know what became of them. They may have abandoned their posts when Trabuco died. It's possible they took the gold and ran, but they must have been extremely cautious. No one ever turned up with the ill-gotten gold stash or even heard rumors about it. Or perhaps no guards ever lived there at all. There's simply no evidence to prove that Trabuco ever stationed anyone near his stash. And as the years went by and no evidence was found, some locals claimed that the story was nothing but a tall tale. Don Leon Trabuco and his four conspirators had never smuggled anything into the United States. And the legendary gold never even existed. Up next, inconsistencies in the stories of Trabuco's treasure. And now, back to the story. In the 1950s, treasure hunter Ed Foster began searching for Don Leon Trabuco's buried gold. He found three geographical markers that seemed to hint at the treasure's location. But in spite of these clues, no gold was ever found in the area. Perhaps that's because Trabuco's fortune doesn't exist. Most of what we know about the stash comes from third or fourth-hand sources, so it's hard to fact-check the details. Some of the most detailed accounts come from treasure hunter and author W.C. Jameson, who wrote a dramatic retelling of William Elliot's encounter with Don Leon Trabuco. In the stories, Elliot told his friends about his adventure, who then told the story to others leading to the local legend. But we have no way of knowing if Elliot was credible. He could have lied. Even if he was completely honest, his friends might have forgotten details, embellished, or repeated speculation as fact. And we know someone was less than honest about the treasure, because the accounts are filled with wild inconsistencies. For example, Jameson claimed that Trabuco was imprisoned and died before Elliot was killed in World War II. But other sources, like the book Spirits of the Border IV, The History and Mystery of New Mexico by Ken and Sharon Hudnall, say that Trabuco visited Mexico in the 1960s. And some even dispute whether William Elliot even worked for Trabuco. In an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, Ed Foster claimed that the pilot who ferried the gold was a man named Red Mosier. Moreover, researching any figure associated with Trabuco's gold is an exercise in frustration. Rafael Borrega, Professor Morata, Carlos Sepulvedo, and even Leon Trabuco are all shrouded in mystery. There's very little historical information about their lives let alone concrete evidence that they were involved in a smuggling plot. That said, the smuggling tale was valid enough to attract the interest of the United States government. In 1952, it convened a grand jury to investigate the claims that Trabuco had violated both international smuggling laws and the Gold Reserve Act. 
Rancher and former California State Senator E. George Lucky testified about his encounter with several people who approached him about a gold sale, including a man named Martin Hugon. Hugon was a mining consultant who allegedly worked for a foreign seller, perhaps Leon Trabuco. Hugon had tried to sell some of Trabuco's gold to Lucky. Hugon claimed to have seen the ingots with his own eyes and estimated that the stash of 35,000 pounds of gold was worth $20 million. Lucky was intrigued, but the deal had seemed suspicious, so he reached out to his lawyer for advice. His lawyer in turn referred him to the United States Secret Service, which worked with the Treasury and Justice Departments to determine the legality of the deal. The U.S. government was incredibly interested in what Lucky had to say and immediately began investigating the case. Unfortunately, Lucky didn't have many details to share with them. He told them that Hugon had talked about using an escrow account at a bank in Ontario, California to work out the sale. But when the government agent spoke to the manager of that branch, he appeared to have no additional information. Either Hugon was good at covering up his tracks, or he'd never had any gold to sell in the first place. But if he was lying about Trabuco's gold to scam Lucky, he could still face charges. Either way, the agents felt they had enough information to call a grand jury and call Hugon to the witness stand. And that's when the investigation hit a snag. While Lucky appeared to give a deposition, Hugon wasn't anywhere to be found. The grand jury released a warrant, but as the story goes, someone tipped Hugon off and he evaded the authorities by moving to another country. Therefore, he never verified any of the stories. After Hugon slipped through their fingers, the government hit the brakes on their investigation. They still hadn't proven that the treasure even existed, nor had they found any clues about where it could be. Nobody wanted to waste resources on a potential wild goose chase. However, the inquiry was reportedly renewed in 1974, the same year that it became legal again for Americans to own and deal gold in large quantities. Some speculate that the U.S. government wanted to see if the gold would turn up in a large private sale. Maybe they hoped to nab those who'd broken the law decades before. Unfortunately, information about the second inquiry is sparse. We don't know what, if any, new evidence turned up. But since the government pursued the case on multiple occasions, it implies that there's at least a hint of truth in the accounts of Trabuco's gold. The fortune probably existed at one point, but we have no way of knowing where it was or if it's still there. In fact, we don't know that the gold is in northwest New Mexico, or even that it's buried. The theory originated with pilot William Elliott, who never saw the gold's hiding place. He theorized that Trabuco stashed the treasure near the spot where he landed. And he only assumed it was buried because Elliott didn't see any other obvious hiding places. But Trabuco's men could have had a safe house that Elliott was unaware of. They might have shipped the gold across the state or across the country. It may not even be one step. 
Perhaps they scattered it across hundreds of bank accounts and safety deposit boxes. Within the tangle of rumor, story, theory, and legend, we're left with only a foggy image of a conspiracy and lost riches. But the story of Don Leon Trabuco is memorable, not only because of the gold, but because of the motives of the men who smuggled it. The speculators witnessed one of the greatest economic catastrophes that the world had ever seen. And in it, they glimpsed an opportunity. While millions of people suffered through the Great Depression, they plotted to feather their own nests. They thought they could rip off the United States government when it was most vulnerable, but they failed. And in failing, they proved that even millionaires are susceptible to disaster. The idea that a normal person can recover these ill-gotten riches no doubt appeals to the adventurer in all of us. But treasure hunters need to be wary lest they fall to the same hubris. The desert landscape can be unforgiving, and it's the perfect place for fortunes and the unfortunate to disappear. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back next week with a short Gone Bite on Spotify and back everywhere else the week after. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Gone, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Gone was written by Matthew Teamstra, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.